So we're doing this series on living like Jesus. Like we've been doing the whole year of being like Jesus. We thought like him, then we acted like him, and now we're living like him. And what that is, is we're taking on the character traits of Christ that sometimes in Scripture we refer to, or oftentimes, as the fruit of the Spirit. That that's what becomes evident in our lives. So I want to stress, if you're visiting and you're not really with us in this series, this is not stuff that we do. These are not spiritual practices. This is who we are in Christ. This is who we become. Now for next week, we're going to be looking at that fruit or that character trait of patience. Those of you who were just dedicating children this morning, make sure you're here next week because you're going to struggle big time with this one right here. What ways has God been patient with you? I want you to think about that over the course of the next week. And this also, in what situations are you most likely to be impatient with others? Dwell on those things as you read Romans chapter 12 for next week. So you're in Romans 14 this week and you're backing up. Here's what I'm hopeful that we're seeing. I know this is just the third week of this, that we did love and then joy and now it's peace. But here's what I'm really hoping is getting through. That there is a difference between a heart, a heart of man, that is restrained by moral rules. I don't really want to follow these rules, but I feel like I need to, so I'm going to do this because that's what I'm supposed to do. Some people live that way. Okay, there's a difference between that and a heart that has been supernaturally changed. I don't need rules. I'm chasing after the heart of God. I don't need a list of rules that tells me what I can and can't do because I'm pursuing God's character. There's a difference between those two things. There's a difference between suppressing your selfishness through your willpower. And a lot of people believe this is Christianity. That we go and we develop this willpower to put down our selfishness. And I got to try and I got to try and I got to try to hold off my selfish ways. There's a difference between someone who lives like that and someone whose selfishness has been permanently changed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. That's what we're after. We're after this and this. That's who we want to be as followers. This week, we're looking at peace, and I ask you to do something. I ask you to focus on the difference between these various types of peace. Peace that God made with humanity, and the peace that God calls for in us, the way we're supposed to act towards others. And then, this is that character trait. The peace that God gives those who are in him. We sometimes call it the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're looking for. Now, the reason I thought it was important to distinguish this is because the word peace is used all over the scriptures. We talked when we did love about how there's a million different types of love and we see them everywhere in our culture. So what is Paul talking about? Well, in scripture, you see Paul using the word peace all the time. And he's meaning different things in the very, uh, these different things when he says it. For instance, the peace that God made, that is peace that arrived as a result of something only God could do. What we just sang about. You could do, we could do nothing to save ourselves to bring about eternal peace. This was only something that God could do. And that's what Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, for he himself is our peace. He created that in himself, making peace and in one body reconcile both of them to God. In other words, Jesus abolished through the cross those barriers between us and God and between us and each other. That's that form of peace. And then there's the peace that God calls for. Okay, I got to be honest with you. When I was getting this ready, this happens to me, and I'm sorry, but I don't think it's bad that I have you read a passage of Scripture. I thought Romans 14 was going to be talking about the kind of peace that Paul is referencing in the fruit of the Spirit. As the week went on, I quickly realized I got to scrap all of this because that's not what he's talking about. This is that second form of peace in Romans 14. If you got your Bible, I'll just look at, look at those first three verses and you'll see it, where he says, except him 
whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. And this is talking about the dietary rules that the Jewish Christians felt like they still needed to follow, and the Gentiles don't really care, and they'll eat whatever they want to eat. Okay, that's what he's referencing here in this passage. Here's what Paul is acknowledging in a larger context. There will always be disputes within a body of believers. We're all fallen. We're all sinful. We all have our own perspectives. The kind of music I prefer is different than the kind of music that you prefer. I may feel uh, that I should wear something to church and you feel like you should wear something else to church. There's always going to be matters of dispute within the body of Christ. We won't always agree with each other, but we should always accept each other. That was that whole teaching that he had on the unity of believers. Look back at verse 3 specifically. The man who eats everything shouldn't look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. This is that practice of peace. You remember when I talked about the spectrum? You got the rule followers over here. I got to keep all the rules in order to be saved. And you got these people over here who say, I'm in total freedom. It doesn't matter what the rules are. You've got the rule keepers and the rule deniers. That, Anybody remember when we talked? Okay, good. And what is happening here? He's saying to the rule deniers, Gentile Christians, don't mock those Jewish believers for, for keeping all of those rules because you think they're out of date. God has accepted them. You should too. And he's saying to the Jewish Christians, don't trash the Gentile Christians over here for being too free and easy. God has accepted them. And you should too. That's what he's stressing. And so that's why as I'm reading this, I'm like, oh man, this is about acting like Jesus. This is about that unity that we talked about already. Instead, if you kept reading in Romans 14, you saw this. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So you see my problem. We're doing something there. And that isn't the peace of God that we're trying to get as a character trait. This would have been great in the uh, acting like Jesus portion of the program. But there's one more kind of peace. And that's the one that Paul talks about in a different context. That's the peace of God. The kind that settles on us. The peace of mind. The freedom from anxiety and worry. Those freedoms, uh, that freedom from anxiety and worry is what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember? He's up there on the hillside and he says, don't worry about your life. What you'll wear and what you'll eat. We remember Jesus saying this, yes. And he references the lilies of the field. I mean, do they worry about what they're going to wear? Solomon didn't look as good as these. With all of his wealth and God takes care of them. And, and the sparrows, how much more valuable are you than the sparrows? You don't see sparrows wandering around saying, oh gee, I hope I can find a worm to eat. Sparrows don't worry about that stuff. God takes care of them. And if you are so much more valuable than them, why are you worrying? It's not going to add a single hour to your life. Well, that's what Paul is echoing. He echoes these very sentiments of Jesus in the passage that I want to spend the, the balance of our time on. So if you got your Bible, flip to Philippians, the fourth chapter. Um, I heard, uh, this had to be divine... Providence, um, a sermon by Tim Keller. I don't know if you know Tim Keller. He's a preacher out in New York City. Man suffering with brain cancer and all the treatments with it right now. I heard a sermon from that guy on the peace of God. But I set up and took notice because that's what we're desiring of. That's what we're wanting. If you're in Philippians chapter 4, look specifically at verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and here it is. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds 
in Christ Jesus. Now I know you've heard this phrase before, but notice what verse 6 is saying. Verse 6 is telling us that the opposite of peace is anxiety and fear. That we have this supernatural peace that settles on us, that becomes part of our character as believers. The opposite of that is anxiety and worldly fear. The debilitating worries that cripple so many people, especially in our culture today, there is so much to worry about. Some of you have brought those in here this morning. Worries and fears and concerns, and it's debilitating to you and to your spiritual walk. That is not the hallmark of a spirit-filled life. Now, I'm not saying that to heap guilt on anybody. It's to drive us towards a very significant and important point. Skip down to where Paul writes in verse 11. I'm not saying all this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the, the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, I have learned the secret. He's saying this over again. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul says he's learned this. He has learned the secret of contentment. He has learned to live like Jesus. Jesus who had plenty of worries, plenty of concerns in his life. I mean, I think you know that he knew where his life was headed. He had plenty of reason to worry, and yet we're told he is the Prince of Peace. He had that character trait, and Paul says, I have learned to live that way. And who taught Paul to learn to, to live that way? Who taught him? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's who taught Paul to live with peace. That's what he has learned, taught him to have the same contentment, inner calm, no matter what the circumstance was that was happening around him. And let's not shortchange Paul. You remember this man's circumstances. I love to complain about how stressed out, and we compete with each other. Well, they don't understand what I'm going through. If they did, they would understand why I'm so stressed out. And we try to compete to see who has the worst circumstances with one another to justify our fears and our worries. This Paul had been shipwrecked. He'd been beaten. He'd been flogged. He'd been stoned. He's always maligned and mocked. He's hated. And in every circumstance, it seems, he is facing death. I can't compete with that. ...on the list of bad circumstances. I can't. I deal with obnoxious teenagers. That ranks up there, but it doesn't quite get to that level right there. And he's content, not because he's just built different. That's not what Paul's saying. Look, I understand you all struggle, but I'm just made different. That isn't it. No, Paul is saying, this isn't natural for me. It would be natural for me to be very worried about all of these things. I have learned the secret of contentment. And I'm reading this and I'm saying that's what I want. I don't want to be shaken by the circumstances that surround me. What exactly has Paul learned? He keeps referencing this secret of contentment. We'll look back now at verse 7. What has Paul learned? And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay. Don't just look over this. I want you to think, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it again, but I'm going to emphasize the part that I really want you to pick up on. What does Paul learn? This is big. you got to learn this. i got to learn this. Here we go. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, what Paul is teaching us is that Christian peace is not the absence of fear and worry. That is not it. You will have fears. You will have worries. We all do. We live in this fallen, messed up world. The secret to contentment is not taking on this attitude where I'm no longer worried or fearful about anything. If you have children and they start driving, every time they leave the house, you're worried. And anymore in our culture, you go to the grocery store and you don't know what's going to happen. You walk out the door and you have no... We have fears and we have worries. That doesn't disappear because we become a Christian. 
It's not the absence of fear or worry. Christian peace is the presence of something greater than those things. Something greater that will live in you and will guard your heart and protect your mind against all of those things that are very real. We said this last week. We as believers can face the realities of the world. The world cannot. Their joy, they're, they're superficial. Remember what we said, it's the apple tree that produces uh, fruit from within. It's the life in it that brings out the peace and the joy and the love. It's just a natural consequence. The world is the fake Christmas tree. They don't have any of that. They're dead inside. And so they try to hang the little ornaments on it to convince themselves and to convince everybody else that they're at peace with all of this. What is the worldly counterfeit? What does the world do to convince themselves that they are at peace with all of these circumstances? There's millions of pills and people are on them and there's therapy. We do these things to deal with our bad days and our bills and our bosses. That's it. That's the way we do things. That's the way the world solves the problem of inner turmoil. You do those things right there. Can I tell you, those things are hanging ornaments. It's not dealing with the underlying problem there. Honestly, if you evaluate worldly therapy... I want you to notice something about it. It almost exclusively focuses on removing certain beliefs and certain thoughts. That's what the worldly counsel is. Stop thinking this. You need to stop thinking these bad thoughts. These things that you worry about. Stop thinking it. you got to stop. Here are ways to avoid thinking that. Here are some practices that you can engage so that you can cope with this and not concentrate on those things. Expel all the bad thoughts in order to find peace. Do you notice something about all of that? You notice what it's doing, right? Please tell me you notice this. Find peace by not being honest with yourself. That's what the world is saying. Don't honestly evaluate what's going on around you. Ignore that stuff. Cover over it. Put the ornaments on the tree and ignore all of that stuff. That's the way that you find peace. Contentment means don't face the facts that surround you. That's worldly therapy. That's where we go. Coping strategies are good. They're good as far as they go. I use coping strategies. I've talked to you before about the anxiety that I have dealt with. And coping strategies are fine. Just like if you have something bubbling up under your skin and it's really itchy, uh, Benadryl cream. It's great. You can slap that stuff on there and it'll take the itch away. But you probably should figure out what's causing the problem to begin with. Right? Coping strategies to take the immediate itch away, that's fine. But you got to deal with the underlying problem. Coping strategies are fine as, as good as they go. But those are ornaments that you're placing on the tree. You're not changing the fundamental problem. Christian peace comes when a power that is stronger than all of those awful realities that exist in the world, it gives you protection. That's Christian peace. It allows you to triumph over all of those things. What did Jesus say? Take heart, for I have overcome the world. All of that stuff out there, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I'm greater. And I am protecting and guarding your heart. That's what I'm doing. Anybody been to Puerto Rico here? Anyone? Yeah, a few of you have been. Okay, I've never been to Puerto Rico, so I can tell you all about it. There are these places in Puerto Rico. I was looking for a video that would illustrate. I knew what I was looking for, and I came across the answer in Puerto Rico. Okay, They've got these things, they call them hidden beaches. And that's like the typical beach where the massive ocean waves come up, and they hit the rocks. Like the rocks are the, the edge of the land. But then on the other side of the rocks is like this little inlet of water. And then there's a beach right there. And you have all these tourists that go to these beaches. Okay, I'm going to show you a video clip because I think this is a perfect demonstration of what I'm trying to say. And what you're going to see is these massive waves that are crashing into the rocks. 
And just 20 or 30 feet back from those things, you get all these kids that are frolicking and families that are at this little inlet. Watch this and you'll see what I'm talking about, okay? It freaked me out the first time I saw it. I thought, it's over for these people. It's a tsunami. But I'll watch this and I'll, I'll show you what I'm talking about. Go ahead. Look at this, babe. Look at that On the other side of those rocks, those waves are massive. But did you see when it hit it and it was coming over the top? I mean, I would have been headed for high ground. But did you see the little girl that was out there waiting in the water and she's jumping up and down? Because she knows by the time that water gets there, it just swells up to about her waist. And families right there, you saw the chick that was sitting there on the, sorry, the lady that was sitting there on the, sorry, just pours out. The lady that was sitting there on the beach, she's completely minding her own business. Man, you've got 50 foot swells that are crashing right behind you. Right, the rocks were guarding and protecting the people on the other side. That's Christian peace. That's what he's talking about. Paul is saying, I, come on baby, there it is, I'm sitting behind that rock wall. That rock is the rock of ages. That is Jesus Christ. I don't ignore the realities of the waves out there, but I know when they crash into me, I am guarded and protected. Will I have some swells that I have to deal with? Yes, but I can be at peace because I know I'm behind the wall. That's the promise that he's talking about. That's what we have. Paul has learned the secret to find contentment and peace. So what's the secret for us to do the same? Well, I think you're going to see a familiar pattern here. And I think you're going to be very impressed in how smart this guy is. Okay? I don't know if you see this, but look at verse 8. This is about finding the secret. What does he say? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. The first way of finding this secret of contentment is to think like Jesus. Huh. Well, how about that? We got to think like Jesus, think like him. Now, you look at that list, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's pure, whatever's admirable. We look at that and we say, well, that's what the world does. That's just the power of positive thinking. Just think about all this good stuff. That's the way we interpret that. And that's the wrong way to interpret it. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying what the world will say. Well, when you get stressed, think about that time that you went on a family vacation and you rested by the beach and the birds and the seagulls and all of that. Right, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying dwell upon the, the calming sunset that you watch out your back window or after a, a meadow has been rained upon. I don't know, I'm just making stuff up here. That's not what he's talking about when he says this. There's, there, it's called the Pauline corpus. I read these commentaries and every single one of them said when Paul uses these words, think about whatever is true and pure and admirable, he's talking about Christian doctrine. That's what he's talking about. What is true? What is pure? What is noble? Christian doctrine. That's what he is saying over and over. In the midst of your fears and worries, think about your doctrine, Christians. Think about the things that you know are true. 
And all of these things in the world are going to fade away in comparison to the doctrine. This is not just positive thoughts. This isn't, remember the time when you went to your grandparents' house and you caught all of the fireflies and you put them in a jar and they suffocated overnight. Don't think about those things that bring you so much joy and peace from your childhood. That's not it. That would be decorating a fake tree. That's not what we're after. What is our doctrine? What is our doctrine as believers? That we serve a God of omnipotent love that we cannot even imagine. And that this God loves us so much he sent Jesus to reconcile our souls. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of our sin. And he resurrected. He didn't stay in the tomb. And he reigns with the Father. And we know that he's interceding on our behalf. Defending us against every accusation of the accuser. And Satan can throw anything he wants against the wall. It doesn't stand a chance in front of that rock that is Christ Jesus. And though human nature will lead us to suffering. We know that this God who resurrected his son Jesus from the dead. Has promised us that there is coming a day when there will be no more pain. And no more sorrow. And no more hurt. And no more night. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Christians, think. Think about your doctrine in the midst of your worries. That's the first step to finding that peace. Now, I want you to contrast that with the world. I feel badly for the world. I don't feel a sense of superiority. I feel badly that the world doesn't have that. Do you know what you don't find in any self-help book? Go to a, go to a what, what's the one? Is it Books a Million that we've got? In, okay, and go to the self-help section and start looking through all those. You know what you're not going to find in those self-help books? Well, you need to begin by thinking about the big questions of life. You're struggling with anxiety. Start thinking about the big questions. Think about why you're here. You know, what's the point of your existence? That's where you need to start. Think about the meaning of life. Do you really matter? That's what you need to start with. Think about where you've come from and where you're going and what your life amounts to. You worldly person that's struggling with anxieties, think about these monumental philosophical questions. No, you will never find that in a self-help book. That's not going to relieve a worldly person's stress. I mean, that's, that's why they, they use the ornaments. They don't want to think about the big questions of life because they don't have the answers to them. That's why these books concentrate constantly on practices and on tactics only. It's why the worldly solutions, they give you relaxation tactics and yoga and change your exercise and change your diet and meditate and sit there and buzz and deep breathing and you minimize your screen time and you got to get these oils and fragrances and burn them in the room. Now listen, some of you do those things. Remember what I said. There's nothing wrong with putting Benadryl cream on an itch. Okay? There's nothing inherently wrong about this stuff that the world says to do. Nothing wrong with those things. I'm not telling you not to do those things. But notice, they are not telling you to think. As this is about not thinking. This is about avoiding the realities of the world and escaping it. Why does the world not say to think? This is a quote from Charles Darwin. A person who has no assured belief in the existence of a personal God and no belief in a future existence of retribution or reward, heaven or hell, such a person can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow whatever impulses and instincts are the strongest or whatever seems to him to be the best ones. That's it. There is no heaven or hell. There is ultimately no right and wrong. If there is no God, then we just got to kind of do this for ourselves. Oliver Wendell Holmes, former Supreme Court Justice, very similar. There is no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of salt. The world has produced me and the rattlesnake, but I will kill it if I get the chance. And the only reason is because it is incongruous, it incongru it's not congruous to the world that I want. 
Okay, what are these guys doing? They're simply explaining, if you begin and end apart from the existence of God, then you don't have any answers to these big questions. They are just noting the implications of a life that is lived in rebellion to God's existence. If there is no God, you're here accidentally. And there's no reward or punishment for how you live. There's no ultimate right or wrong. And how can somebody say there's nothing significant about me compared to a baboon or a rock? Because ultimately there's no accomplishment. Why would you ever feel more significant than a rattlesnake or a rock? Well, here's what a worldly person might say. Well, because I can do things. You know, I could build a hospital. That would be contributing something. That's an accomplishment. I don't see any rocks out there building hospitals. Okay, that, that makes sense for a second. But then stop and think about this. Once the sun dies, even the greatest accomplishments of men will be wiped out. They won't amount to anything. So in the end, why are you any more significant than a rock or a baboon or a rattlesnake? This is it, friends. That's why. If you believe that way, what's the last thing you want to do if you are worried and fearful and anxious? The last thing you want to do is dwell on the implications of your beliefs. Because you, what will you determine? I ultimately have no significance. Why do people swallow the end of a shotgun? Because they don't have answers to these things. They can't explain it. They have no peace. And they've tried the ornaments and they've covered it up with all the stuff on the outside. And yet... They've contemplated and realized on the inside of all of those ornaments is a dead, fake tree. That's it. So instead, the world says, practice these ways to ignore all of the implications of your beliefs. But Paul is saying the Christian will do the exact opposite. We think about our beliefs. When we're struggling, we think about that God made us for fellowship with him, that he created perfection and no sorrow, and it's all gone wrong because of our rebellion. We are broken, but he sent his son to fix it and to fix us. And in him, your future is secure, and you have a hope that can never be taken away. You concentrate on that, Christian. A worldly person looking for peace, they go to the bottle. They go to drugs. They go to a, a different level or plane of consciousness. Some way to escape the reality of what they're living. All of those are distractions in order to avoid thinking. I don't want to think about where I am, but listen, this is really important. Please get this. If you're a Christian and you're not at peace, it's because you are not thinking. It's because you are not dwelling on the truth that we have that dwells inside us. Now, look back to verse 6. Back at verse 6, what does he say? Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. After we think, we need to act like Jesus. See? Yeah? Yeah, you're, you're noticing, right? Man, that guy is good. After we think, then we act like Jesus. Exactly what we've said. But I want you to notice something about that verse. Let me read it one more time. Verse 6, look at it. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Okay, here's the typical pattern. This is how it typically works. Whether you're talking to God or you're talking to somebody else. You ask for something, and then you get that something... And then after you've gotten it, then you express gratitude for that something. That's the typical exchange how this works. I ask you for something, you give it to me, and then I say, thank you. Right? That's how it typically works. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that in this passage. He's saying you thank God as you are making your requests. As you are petitioning him, you are thanking him. He talks about the secret. He keeps talking about the secret of contentment. I think this is it. When he says those words right there... With thanksgiving, you present your request to God. I think this is the secret of contentment. Our life is in his hands 
And he cares for us. He cares for us. He will always act in our best interest. I can believe that, and you can believe that. So we can ask him and thank him simultaneously because we know whatever he does in this situation, however he answers us, will be for our own good. Let me say that again. The reason I can thank God as I'm asking him for something is because I know that whatever it is that he answers me will be for my own good. If it's not what I want, he's giving me something that he knows is better for me. That's what he says in Romans 8. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. We know that, don't we Christians? That's why you can do that. And you say, wait a minute, in all things he works for the good? Even the bad stuff? Yeah, even the bad stuff. I mean, I got examples. I, do you know how many people, probably four or five, that I prayed, God, maybe if I could have a relationship with this person, I really think this could be something positive. I prayed, maybe I could marry this individual over here if you could make that work out. And then none of it worked out. And why? Because he had something better that was waiting, right? And, and I'm very thankful that none of those things worked out. All right, Jen, you. Anyway, I, I, look, and some of you have gone through a divorce. And that's terrible. It's awful. You didn't want it. You didn't desire it. It tore you up. And maybe some of you have now lived long enough that you see the good that God was working in that situation. Maybe you haven't seen that yet. But you can know and trust that God is working for your good. You've got examples, I've got examples, but they're all piddly compared to the ultimate example. Can I give you? This is definitive. You can't argue with this one. I want you to imagine for a second that you were one of the disciples on the day of the crucifixion. You were Peter or Andrew or James or John. I listed them in order, well, it doesn't matter. Peter or Andrew or James or John, what would you have said after the cross? After you watched the crucifixion, what do you think and what do you say? Well, we know what they thought and what they said. They all scurried away and they hid and they were demoralized and they were, they were defeated. They felt terrible about the situation. They would have said and they did say, there is no way that anything good can possibly come from this. After all of his healing and after all of his miracles and all that amazing teaching that convinced me that he was the Messiah, they just killed him. I just saw him laid in a tomb. What good could possibly, that's the son of God and they murdered him. What good could possibly come from that? That's what you would have said. And yet, they were looking at the single greatest thing that could have ever happened to sinful humanity. That's what I'm saying. If you can take the death of God's Son and work something that brings about the salvation of all mankind, I don't know what piddly thing we, you and I are dealing with, but God is working for good in that situation. The master chess player, he works all things, even our worst moments, for good. Can I tell you somebody who knew that? Do you know that name? Horatio Spafford. In 1871, Horatio Spafford, a prosperous lawyer and devout Presbyterian church elder, and his wife, Anna, were living comfortably with their four young daughters in Chicago. In that year, the Great Chicago Fire broke out and devastated the entire city. Spafford lost nearly all of his earthly possessions. Two years later, the family, trying to recover, decided to vacation with friends in Europe. At the last moment, Horatio was detained by business. And Anna and his four girls went on ahead, sailing on the ocean liner, Ville du Ovre. On November 21st, 1873, the liner was accidentally rammed midship by a British vessel. In the panic, Anna gathered the four young girls and prayed with them as the ship slipped beneath the waters within minutes. Anna and the girls were quickly separated by the waves. All four of the Spafford girls drowned. 
Anna was found unconscious on a floating wood panel by a rescue ship that took her on to England. Awaiting word on the fate of his family, Horatio received a cable from his wife with only two words, saved alone. In his grief, Horatio sailed for England to bring his wife home, and somewhere over the Atlantic, the Atlantic that had taken his four daughters, he began to write the words to a famous hymn. You know what it is? When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, or when sorrows, like sea billows, roll, whatever my lot, you, God, have taught me to say, what? It's well with my soul. My question is, can you say the same? You can search as long as you want. There is only one place that you will find that peace. 